some pretty neat truths about the God we serve, right? I think we could go home, but they scheduled this part of the service, so we'll have at it anyway. It's great to be here, and uh, I'm encouraged because Steve's mind is starting to go, it means he's getting old like I am, because uh, actually we've known each other since Saskatoon, yeah, and uh, he was a youth pastor in Alberta, and I think we we probably ran into each other playing floor hockey once or twice at uh, various district things. But uh, he looked uh, pretty much the same, same hair for sure back then. But anyway, <laughs> my hair's not quite the same as it was back then. But uh, yeah, that's since about 1993, if I can remember. I think that's when we went to Saskatoon. So uh, great to be here. And greetings from uh, 160-odd churches uh, from Ottawa in the east to, um, to obviously Vancouver Island and Dawson City up north. Close to the Beaufort Sea. 14 languages this morning. The Free Church worships in Canada. I think 14 or 15. It's hard to keep up. Last weekend, in fact, I was in Toronto. I, I spent the morning at Redeemer Chinese Evangelical Free Church, uh, hanging out with some Chinese friends. And then I scooted up to Richmond Hill and uh, joined uh, our Iranian church of Richmond Hill and listened to some worship in Farsi. Listen to some folks worship that understand what it means to be the persecuted church most of whom have come to Christ in Iran through dreams and visions of Jesus showing up, which is a little bit of a challenge to us free church folks, but pretty exciting. And I got to explain to them how the free church works and why it's a good thing to elect your pastor and elect your leadership when, uh, you, uh, you, know, when you come from a culture where basically the strongest person seizes power. Uh, explaining how the church could work is an interesting thing, but it was just it's always exciting for me to go there and uh, fellowship with folks who who love Jesus, who are figuring out how to uh, live the faith out in Canada, in a new country. And that's the free church. You know, it used to be Swedish and Norwegian and all that fun stuff. And we could still tell the odd Swedish and Norwegian joke, but uh, most of us ain't that anymore. And, uh, and so God is working in the free church. So it's an exciting time. Uh, it's, a, it's an exciting time in many ways. Um, 100 plus missionaries around the world. Uh, neat things God is doing. We prayed for Verhoegs this morning. Really neat when you can, God takes a dairy farmer, takes him across to Ukraine, basically uses him to transform an entire village, uh, setting up a training, training school and giving uh, people skills and uh, sharing Christ with them through that. And uh, so pretty neat. Continue to, to pray for Verhoegs. They're, uh, they're wrestling through some difficult issues these days, and, uh, and I know they would really covet your prayers. 
Well, I step into really the second week of a series that you have going on Fools for Christ. And um, I, uh, I went to Briarcrest once a time, upon a time, and then I went off to university. And so I, I, uh, I was at Waterloo and uh, Laurier and University of Toronto and University of Saskatchewan. And one of the things that <clears throat> comes up over and over again is you uh, take any sort of secular education, especially in sociology or social, uh, those kinds of uh, disciplines, is, is this kind of enlightenment belief that, you know what, this, we, we're getting smarter and smarter all the time. We're making progress. As long as we teach people more stuff, you know, eventually things like science will overtake and will be, and things like religion and Christianity will die out because we won't need that superstitious nonsense anymore. That's for foolish people, right? Uh, and, uh, and I've certainly uh, uh, wrestled and lived in that world from, from the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s when I was uh, going to school. And, uh, and that is kind of, you know, we have, uh, this is why things change all the time, because we keep getting smarter, right? And you can see that in how we treat each other better all the time, right? I'm being sarcastic here, okay? But, uh, I, I come across a great thing about teachers, right? Many of us learned math in different eras here. And so I came across this, I thought it's really kind of funny about how math has changed over the years, because we clearly are getting smarter. So here's a 1960s arithmetic test. A logger cuts and sells a truckload of lumber for $100. His cost of production is four-fifths of that amount. What is his profit? Well, in the 1970s, we had new math. And, uh, a logger, and it goes like this. A logger exchanges set L of lumber for a set M of money. The cardinality of set M is 100. The set C of production cost contains 20 fewer points. What cardinality of set P is profits? This is no wonder. Anybody take math in the 70s here? I did, yeah. I'm, no wonder I'm confused. Okay, in 1980s, we went to a dumbed-down test. A logger cuts and sells a truckload of lumber for $100. His cost of is, is $80. His profit is $20. Fine and circle the number 20. <laughs> and then, of course, we have the 1990s New Age test. An unenlightened logger cuts down a beautiful stand of 100 trees in order to make a $20 profit. Write an essay explaining how you feel about this as a way of making money. <laughs> so things change, don't they? And, uh, and, and this whole idea of fools for Christ, is there is a sense that the culture is changing. In fact, in uh, 2003, Angus Reid took a poll of Canadians about how, what they thought of, of, of evangelical Christians. And in, in 2003, evangelical, uh, or Canadians thought evangelical Christians in Canada were actually pretty good people, good citizens. The culture would be poor if we weren't around. Ten years later, in 2013, same question, same poll. Radically different answer. In fact, there, most Canadians now think that uh, they don't actually identify evangelicals as Christians. They, they identify us as religious radicals who believe the wrong things about a number of things, right? And so now we're seen as fools, offensive, and maybe even dangerous, like radical. So something has changed in 10 years. That's not a long period of time. So things have changed. So we live in a world where we believe the wrong stuff and the, the culture is a little hostile to us. Now, I believe that in a, in a very real sense, you know, we, we might say this is the worst of times, but I believe this is the best of times for us as the Church of Jesus Christ. More opportunities than we've ever had to look odd, to look foolish, right? To really get it right about what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. And this shouldn't be all that surprising to us, but because Jesus in his own day was controversial, was he not? 
I want to look at Luke chapter 7 this morning because we're going to talk about foolish faith. But in verse 34, before we get to our, our text in verse 36, we see that, that, that Jesus is already accused of what? Being a glutton, being a drunk, being a friend of sinners, and tax collectors. This is the Savior we follow, where the respectable people in the culture thought he was soft on sin, essentially, right? They could not get their head around really the mission he was there for. And I want to take a look at chapter 37, verse 36 to 50, because I think we see further proof that the religious wise leaders thought that this newfangled faith that was being really um, formulated by this upstart rabbi was foolish, soft on sin, and offensive from the get-go. Now, the public, we're going to take a look at the woman who comes uh, during the meal, and I think her really ostentatious, flagrant, display of faith and Jesus response to that is is just as foolish today and offensive as it would have been in the day that Jesus uh, uh, that Jesus lived and it I want also wanted to, to postulate that I think it's probably offensive to us and foolish to us because there's probably a bigger streak of Pharisee in each of us than we care to admit so I want to take a look at this this morning because I believe there's three reasons why we might find this whole story just a little bit <clears throat> offensive. So I want to read, uh, I'm reading from New Living Translation, um, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. The story goes, the events are described by Luke this way. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him, so Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. And when a certain immoral woman from that city heard he was eating there, she, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume. She knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair, and she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Jesus told him this story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver or denarii to one and 50 to the other. But neither of them could repay him. So he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman. Kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she has washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who has forgiven little shows only little love. And Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray as we come to the word uh, this morning. Father, thanks for your word. We thank you that it is powerful today. We ask that your spirit would take us, take it, help us to see and hear what we need to see and hear. Some of us need to be encouraged. Would you do that? Some of us need to be challenged and transformed. Would you do that? 
And we just ask that you would uh, make us more like your son, even as we peer into the word this morning. By the power of your spirit, transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I think the first reason what we would find uh, this, uh, this Jesus and this, this whole idea of the faith uh, very much uh, foolish, just like, our, uh, just like our Pharisee friend does, is because we are incompetent judges. We are incompetent judges. Uh, take a look at this story. Now think about how this is setting up. This is uh, one of the Pharisees invites Jesus to have dinner with him. They go to his house and they're reclining at the table. Now there's three people, you know, there's kind of three people in this story. There's obviously the Pharisee, there's the woman who we're going to meet in a minute, and there's Jesus. Now the Pharisees, the word Pharisee literally meant separated ones. The Pharisees were like the wise religious leaders of the day. They were guardians of the law and they were guardians of the purity of its observance. In fact, for the Pharisee, there was only two kind of people in the world. As they look back at the Old Testament, there was pure people or clean people, and there were unclean people. And they judged the whole world on this, and their mission in life essentially was purity, to stay clean. So their mission was, don't get touched by impure people, or you will become impure. And so, because this is their mission, and because this is their worldview, because there's only two kind of people, and they, they actually judge people by these standards, they have a real hard time with what's going to happen here in this story. And they have a hard time with Jesus' response to it as well. So enter the woman. And the woman is a sinful life. Everybody knows this. She's a prostitute, probably. And, uh, and so she clearly does not fit into the pure category for these, this Pharisee. She is clearly undeserving to be at this meal, and she is impure, and no one should go near her. But this woman comes in remorse, and in repentance, and in worship, because she hears that Jesus is there. And... At a meal at this time, of course, you recline and you, you put your head on your left, your left arm and your feet trail out behind you. And this woman comes in behind and is weeping in remorse for her sin. And she wants to turn her life around and she wants to follow this teacher, this Lord. And as she weeps in repentance and in remorse, she realizes she has no towel. She anoints his feet with perfume. These are the tools of her trade, right? This is a pre-individual, you know, you know, four-bedroom, six-bathroom kind of house kind of era, right? This is pre-everybody has their own shower and bathroom in the home. So perfume is really important. And perfume is her stock and trade. This is part of the tools of her trade. And the other tool of her trade is her hair. So imagine how scandalous this is at this meal. And she weeps. She comes to worship. She comes in remorse. And she weeps. And she realizes no towel. So she uses the only thing she has, which is her hair. And she dries his feet. And the Pharisee and all the dinner guests, imagine how scandalous this is. And what's scandalous is also Jesus' non-response to this. He just lets her do it. 
And you see, the Pharisees were people that judged people. They judged your value based on whether you were clean or unclean. And so in verse 39, we see the Pharisee who divided himself, he said to himself, he's thinking this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So he's, he's already judged her, right? He already thinks she's low life. Now he's judging Jesus, right? And it's a great, it's a great syllogism as, uh, as you take in logic, right? The, the assumption is there, if he's a prophet, that's the first premise, he would know. That's probably a good, a good premise. The second premise is, if he knew, then he would not let her touch him. That's the one that Jesus wouldn't agree with, you see. Because Jesus' mission isn't to stay pure and not touch sinful people, right? What was Jesus' mission? Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus never believed that if he touched a sinner, he would get sinful too. That was not Jesus' idea. That's our idea, right? I always chuckle a little bit because my kids are of the generation where judging is always wrong. You know, can't judge, can't judge, can't judge. Except my kids, I think, are the most judgmental generation I've ever seen. They judge people on everything, on how they dress, on what they look like, right? This is, in, this is human, right? We value people based on things. The Pharisee based it on purity, on lifestyle. We do the same. Jesus looked at her differently. He saw, right? He saw her remorse. He saw her repentance. He saw her love. He saw her worship. The Pharisee could see none of that, right? He sees none of it. He only sees who she is, what she's done. We like that at all? Into a world that we live in, that's how the world looks at people. And to not look at it that way is foolish, I believe. Remember the story in John 4, Jesus, the Samaritan woman at the well, talking to this woman? If you read through the story in verse 27, the disciples come back, and they are absolutely shocked and astounded why Jesus is talking, number one, to a woman, because the culture valued women lower than men, and number two, a Samaritan woman at that. Right? Because the disciples were part of this culture of valuing people based on certain standards that, of course, were not necessarily God. But they had missed, the, 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 the Pharisee had missed her love and her remorse and her worship. They only saw the sinner. Jesus sees everything. He sees the whole package. We are, I think, sometimes so, so good at missing the point. I love this uh, this uh, quip, somebody writes, I came across a movie poster on the web of a couple kissing passionately in the pouring rain. I called my husband over. How come you never kiss me like that? He studied the sodden couple. Well, because we haven't had that much rain. Right? Right? And he's a man. He can be excused. But we miss the point sometimes, right? That's kind of missing the point. The Pharisee has missed the point as well. And if you read James, you will read James in, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, in terms of James saying, hey, are you, you are judges with evil intentions when you prefer, right, 
you, you favorite people. You favorite these people over these people. Or if you go to chapter 4, you have the same kind of idea that we become judges with evil intent when we judge our neighbor. Why? Because we actually don't, we aren't qualified to judge, right? We aren't. We don't know everything. Jesus saw the whole picture. We get stuck with people, who, with, with just seeing the sinner. We're incompetent judges. But we, but we have this, really this reflex to judge who's valuable, who's not. And, and, and in our world, purity trumps love. Or impurity trumps love. In Jesus' world, love trumps sin. Right? But that makes Christianity kind of foolish in the world we live in. Because we just like to judge. We like to value I'm sure that uh, as you go through this series, you're going to spend time in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 because this is where Paul talks about how we are fools for Christ. In uh, 1 verse 18, he says this, The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. The message of the cross is foolishness because the message of the cross is that love conquers sin. And I'm not sure that we actually believe this. But in this, in this instance, we see, we see a woman of ill repute, probably uneducated, sinful, and we see the other person here, a very, very righteous, educated Pharisee. And the hero of this story is not the educated, righteous person. The hero of this story is the woman. And I believe there's a little streak of Pharisee in all of us where we are tempted to take the wisdom of the world instead of the foolishness of Christ, to substitute that instead of the message of the cross. And as believers, we need to avoid that. Second reason I think that we're tempted to do this, that we find this story of the woman's faith a little bit foolish, is that we are really infinitely ignorant about how poor we really are. So we take the, to the story, and he says, I have something to tell you. And tell me, teacher. And he tells the story about the moneylender. One owes him 500 denarii, which is probably about two years' wages, and, and the other one only 50. But you see, here's the thing. In the accounting world, these people both have negative assets, right? Neither one of them can pay it back. So the person that owes 500 might have this big cash flow, but they're still in the hole because they owe more than they can pay back. The person with 50 may have uh, you know, a, a smaller cash flow and may feel very, really, really poor compared to the other person, but they're both really, really poor. That's the point of the story. Neither one of them can pay it back. One just has a really big, big, big debt, but uh, they may have a bunch of assets, too. Who knows? But the point of the story is that both of them are poor. Both of them are bankrupt. Every time you go to a movie, you hear the good old Scotiabank, right? You're richer than you think. I think we should coin one as believers. It would be foolish in the world we live in. And it is this. You are poorer than you think. Right? This is why in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us that we come to him what? Blessed are the people who think they're rich in no, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. We are poorer than we think. We come to him in poverty. This is not a popular thing to believe in the world today, right? 
Because we're all about self-actualization. We all think we're rich. We're all good at root in the culture we live in. Love this. I saw this despair.com cartoon. It says, multitasking, the art of doing twice as much as you should, half as well as you could. Right? And that's us. But we think we're good at everything. In fact, we treat, teach our kids their, their gold medal at everything, even if they just show up and they're last. Right? Another great despair.com. For every winner, there's dozens of losers. Odds are, you're one of them. Right? Like we don't teach our kids to come in second. But we tell them all they can win the gold medal. Now, how realistic is this, really? Right? And Jesus says, we, are all, we all have the same moral equity before God. And it's negative. So it doesn't matter how good you think you are and how bad the person over on the other side of the church is. We're all in the same place of needing mercy because we bring what to the table? We bring what we have, but it ain't enough. It is not enough. And so Simon says, I suppose he has to answer quickly, or uh, carefully, good, careful rabbinic, uh, well, I suppose the one who has the bigger debt canceled is the one who loves more. Yes, you've judged correctly, he says. But it's very difficult for us, I think, to, to really get to the place where we believe that we are poor because we, we, we are conditioned from when we are very young that, that we are good, um, that we are good enough. And uh, love this uh, person says, uh, I'm a retired man who volunteers to entertain patients in nursing homes and hospitals. One day I took my portable keyboard along. I told some jokes and sang some funny songs at, the pa- at, at a patient's bedside. When I finished by way of saying goodbye, I said, I hope you get better. The man replied, I hope you get better too. Right? We're not as good as we think, right? And this is the, this is the, this is the challenge that, that, that I believe we have. If you read further on in 1 Corinthians 1, it says, uh, Paul says, So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The foolish plan of God is... is, uh, wiser than the wisest of human plans and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest uh, the greatest of human strength like we are part of this this narrative where God uses weakness for power right prostitutes like Rahab and this woman and fishermen who deny Christ three times and he builds his church on the There's got to be a better plan than this, right? And weak people like us. And that's our legacy. And somehow we get sucked into the world's wisdom of we got to do things better. We got to be resourced better. We we, we got to blend in better, right? 
And when we do this, we lose the power, right? Because we lose the authenticity. And we lose the very foundation of this. Is we come in weakness and poverty to this journey of faith. And we can, we can continue in that, or we can choose to go the world's way and continue now to have a nice veneer. We got it together. We're well-resourced, right? But we choose the second way. We lose the power. We substitute what the world values instead of what, what God values. Great, uh, great uh, I'm in the middle of a book of mere Christianity with a group of guys, and um, Lewis, C.S. Lewis argues that the foundation of the of the Christian narrative is the very nature of the universe where we essentially all believe in a, in a standard of right and wrong and as Romans 2 says, our conscience bear witness against us. We don't even live up to the standard of morality that, that we think right, we should live up to. But that's foolishness in a world where Canadians, 51% of Canadians now believe this. Right and wrong is a matter of personal opinion, Right? So we all believe it's all relative, and probably, compared to other people, I'm pretty good, right? But we, the people of God, are people of humility. People that believe that God uses the weak, who come to him in poverty, to confound the strong. Lastly, the last reason I think that we're tempted to really join the world in terms of how we would look at foolish faith of this woman and of Jesus is that we are indifferent. We are apathetic lovers. We are comfortable. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I love that question. Do you see this woman? Of course they saw this woman. They were scandalized by this woman, right? But all they could see was her sin. That's all they could see. They could not see her remorse. They could not see her her devotion, her worship, her repentance, her love. They could only see she's a sinner. And Jesus says, do you see her like I see her? I came into your house and basically you treated me, you gave me the minimum standard of welcome as a guest. You didn't give me water for my feet. She has been extravagant to wet my feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman has not stopped from kissing my feet. I wonder if we don't welcome Jesus into our life a little bit like the Pharisee sometime. Just as an extra guest. But minimum hospitality. And this woman is extravagant in her faith. And her sin, yes, is great. But her extravagant love leads to forgiveness. And Jesus saw the woman, but he saw the whole thing. And I wonder if, as Christians in North America, we are not comfortable just inviting Jesus in as an extra guest, along with everything else and everyone else. He who has been forgiven loves little, when I go to visit my, when my friends from the Iranian church, they often are weeping during worship because they've come from Islam. And condemnation to freedom in Christ. 
and they are thankful. And I believe that we are like the person that we think we only owe 50 bucks, right? 50 denarii. In fact, Jesus is probably lucky to have us on his team, right? And we feel like we've been forgiven little. We are thankful little. We love little. When we read 1 John, of course, we find out that love is the evidence of faith. This is my command to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he has commanded us. 1 John 4, 7 to 11, just it talks about how love is, is, is the thing that, uh, that, we, that we are supposed to be known for. But somehow, that initial sense of being forgiven much wears off on us. I love this. My husband was just coming out of anesthesia after a series of tests in the hospital. I was sitting at his bedside. His eyes fluttered open and he murmured, You're beautiful. Flattered, I continued my vigil while he drifted back to sleep. Later he woke up and said, You're cute. Well, what happened to beautiful, I asked him. The drugs are wearing off, he replied. Right? And we're a little bit like that. Like there's, In the beginning, we have this clear sense that we are, we are forgiven much. And so we love much. And then we, we begin to take that for granted over time. I love uh, verses 26 to, to 29 in First Corinthians 1. Paul says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are, who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. And those of us who understand that we are poor, that God has chosen the weak, we are the people who understand that we have much to be thankful for, right? But that's foolishness to the world. That's not how the world thinks. The world thinks we're good. We're generally, the world thinks that love is essentially just not harming people, right? That's a kind of weak definition of love. This woman, this woman who has of ill repute, who has the worst, right, the worst reputation of all, she worships him powerfully and loves powerfully. And we have made love something like, I just won't do harm. That's not love, that's just liking people, sort of, Right? Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith is saved, you go in peace. So here you have this poor woman of ill repute, with no reputation, who comes in remorse and humility and loves much and receives forgiveness. And on the other hand, you have the host, the Pharisee, who comes with pride and judgment and a great reputation and is indifferent and goes away with nothing. And this is the foolishness of the gospel. And this is the power of the gospel, isn't it? That lives are transformed because of this. And what do the, the, the guests jump to right away? As soon as Jesus said, your, your sins are forgiven, they missed the whole point, once again, of this of this powerful illustration of the woman being forgiven and they jump into systematic theology mode what do you mean hang on he can't forgive sins right 
we're really quick sometimes, I think, to jump into our programs and our systematic theology, and that's all, that's good stuff, but sometimes we can miss the point. We miss, uh, we miss the centrality of the person of Jesus Christ and how he views things. Yes, Jesus has the authority to forgive and declare that his, the, her faith is saved her because he is the creator of the universe, right? He is the judge. He's also her defense lawyer. He's also her sacrifice. Let me close with uh, this story. The woman writes, we went to uh, the open house tonight at the public elementary school. When Rachel's teacher met us, her eyebrows seemed to elevate slightly. She spoke kindly of our first grader, but said she had some concerns. She then invited us to look at the artwork. We would see what she meant. Dozens of brown paper treasure chests were tacked to the bulletin board. Each had a barreled top attached with a brad. On the front was printed, a real treasure would be. We walked over and began opening the lids to find Rachel's treasure and see why it so concerned her teacher. As we peeked into each chest, we saw TVs and Nintendos, a few genies, heaps of gold coins, and a unicorn. Rachel's chest was in the very bottom corner. We had to stoop to open it. Inside, our daughter had drawn Jesus hanging on a cross with red drops of blood shaped like hearts dripping from his hands. And she had completed the sentence, a real treasure would be Jesus. Do you see my concern, the teacher asked, her arms folded across her chest? Yes, my husband agreed. I see what you mean. The J is backwards, isn't it? We live in a world as different values, right? And who we are in Christ is foolish. And I don't know, maybe you're here this morning and you're one of those folks that's trying to get your head around a, a faith that actually values sinners, is soft on sin. Or you're trying to get your head around why you come in poverty when it's when you think you're rich morally. Or maybe you're trying to get your head around this this whole, how could a Savior love me when I've done so much? Or maybe you're here this morning and you know Jesus, but some of the stuff the world believes is sort of snuck in. We're a people that believe that actually we're not very good judges of people's values. We're a people that believe that blessed are the poor in spirit, that we actually, the power in this faith comes from our poverty first before him. We're a people who are thankful because we've been forgiven much. And my prayer is that we would become a people that would love much, not just to do no harm, but actually see the woman, to see this woman, that we would notice her. But not just that she's a sinner, that she is loved by Jesus Christ, and that we would have the joy of seeing Jesus transform her life and rescue her, make her one of his children, and that she would be a sister of ours, that we would value equally with all the other brothers and sisters. And that, yeah, the world would see that we're odd, just like the first century church was odd, 
But they did okay, didn't they? Because it was a good odd. It was a powerful odd. Thanks, Father, for the privilege to be your children. Make us fools for Christ. Give us, give us this woman's kind of faith. It's extravagant. Help us to be poor. And then in the help us to live by the power of the riches we find in Jesus Christ. Return the power to our lives and to our churches once again. We pray in Christ's name.